0: Honestly, my, um, don't, I don't know how to follow that. Honestly, I mean that the if there's a if there's a time in your ministry where you just almost want to stop and close the service um, without the preaching, it's it's one of these moments where we've just seen we've we've had it. I mean, really, we've had it all unpacked for us in, in music and and then the reading of God's word and then the reading of God's word again and and the portions of scripture that were. We're red. We're just so full of power and strength, and um, so we can say amen to that. Amen. Amen. We serve a great God, don't we? And uh, He is just amazing. And and when we sing about Him with those with the songs that we sing, we 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 really. What's amazing about it is we're really not even touching the surface yet, right? We're we're still like treading on the top of the water. Um, According to Scripture, one day we get to see it all. Come unfolded before our eyes, we get to see God. Um, we'll be like Christ and get to see him for who he is. And so what a wonderful, uh, what a wonderful worship time. I thank uh, all of the worship team for putting that together and, and letting the Lord use them in that way. I, I'm, all, I'm very thankful for our worship teams, plural, uh, just amazing the work that they do each week and uh, bringing us into God's presence uh 1 uh, John, if you're turning your Bibles, I have a few announcements that I want to just kind of um, mention in addition to what Steve already announced. Um, remember that we have the deacon affirmation um, right now in the process for, for Jason Puffer. And uh, Jeff mentioned this morning that we have about half of the, half or less than half of the results that we're looking to get. So if you haven't had a chance, please get one of the affirmation sheets from one of the elders. Are they in the back as well? They're in the back, and I have them. Okay, they're in the back too, and, and Jeff has some. So get one of those affirmation sheets, if you would. Fill that out and get it back to one of the elders. Next week is the deadline. We'd like to have all of these. So if you don't want to get a call this week, uh, then do us a favor and get that filled out for us. Um, I also wanted to say this too. Next, It's not next week, but on September 10th, again, we're going to start the the prayer meeting in the mornings uh, at 8:30 um, we started it. we had it at 8 now for a little while and i think it's probably a little bit difficult to get around and to get here by then so we haven't had a great turnout so i decided to make it at 8:30 and then i wanted to throw some food into the mix too so that, you know you know what you, you do what you can do to get people here right and uh, but you know i i understand that sometimes it's hard to get up get breakfast Get all those things together, and then get to the church, and you know all of that stuff is understandable. So what we're going to do is we're going to have breakfast here. And there'll be coffee. Um, we'll be over in the in the uh, um, what's it called? Christian, Ed building. Christian Ed building. Thanks, guys. <laughs> I haven't been here very long, so I haven't figured out all the names of the buildings yet. they're going to be coffee over there. What's that? Speaking of coffee, yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I need some right now. Um, there'll be coffee. That's a good motivator, right? Jason, okay, I, I got this chance to spend a few days with Jason this weekend, and what I, one thing I know about him is he likes coffee, <laughs> so, um, but we'll have coffee over there, we'll have some kind of a, a breakfast food, so you don't need to worry about eating breakfast before you come, and then just come and, and we'll spend about 15 minutes of eating and fellowship, and then about 30 minutes um, of prayer, and then we'll head over here for service, and let me say this to you, um, Prayer has been a, is a lost truth. If you study God's word, you will find that every time you see a massive move of the Holy Spirit, it's always associated with what? Not just prayer, but it's associated with corporate prayer. Believers coming together and touching the hem of God's garment, if you will. James tells us the effectual prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much, right? So to say all that, I don't want you to wake up next Sunday and say, we have to go to prayer meeting because <laughs> Pastor John gave this big speech on it. And No, I don't want you to feel that way, but, but I do want you to have a passion to see God move, right? And then to know that, hey, here's something that Biblically, always connected to prayer, and not just biblically, but historically. If you study revivals, you know what's always associated with those revivals? Uh, great prayer meetings. Great prayer meetings. So that being said, uh, two weeks, I think, is September 10th, and we'll start at that Sunday morning. Next Sunday, we'll do it at 8 again, and so um, if you want to come, you can. But two weeks, we'll do it 8.30. We'll have some food. And, uh, and we'll just reach out to our Lord and Savior and, and uh, ask him to do something special in our midst. Amen? I, I, I want to say this, and I don't, I don't want to be offensive in what I'm going to say, but I think we, I, I love our music. I said that already. I think we put a lot of energy and emphasis into our music, and I love that, but I think we need to have a balance of putting that same emphasis into our prayer life. You guys can, I don't want to be alone in this one. <laughs> Ron, at least shake your head because you're the one leading in fear. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? We do, we, we put a lot of emphasis. The Lord says this, he says this, what you do in private will be rewarded in public, Right? So it really, putting emphasis into our private life is so much more important than putting emphasis into our public life. Actually, God rewards it. So what we experience this morning in worship, hopefully, is a result of what's taking place in our life privately. So that being said, join me for prayer in the next couple of weeks, and, and uh, I think that the Lord will bless it and be glorified in it. 1 John chapter number 3. 1 John chapter 3. Uh, last week, we talked about God's special love, um, 1 John chapter number 3, verse 1 through 3. Uh, the Bible talks about how God has a different love. He calls it a type of love. And God has what we know of as a general love, which is for all mankind. And then he has a very special love, which uh, we know of as a salvific love, which, it, which basically is what God, uh, when God acts upon a person to bring salvation to them, he's acting on them in a special way. Um, above the way that he acts on everybody. And there are things that God does in our lives to bring us to himself that he doesn't do in everybody's life. And, and that's a special love that he is bestowing upon us as his children. Now, you, you may ask the question, why does God do that? And the answer is this, because he wants to. I was driving down the road this week. I was on my motorcycle driving to the conference in, um, in Concord. And I was just looking at the hills and noticing the hills, and you're on a motorcycle, you can really just kind of notice things, and it's, it's you know, the wind's blowing through. Never mind. <laughs> so, not blowing through your hair, okay? <laughs> blowing through your helmet, right? Um, but you're able to think about things, and I was, I was driving down the road, and I, and I was thinking about, man, look at all these beautiful hills, and, and I was like, why, Lord, why did you make all these things? And it was like this... Spirit sparked in me, it's like I made those things because I wanted to. It's like, okay, I guess that's a good enough reason, right? God did it because he wanted to. Then I was just driving, I kept on driving, and my mind, you know, my mind wanders from place to place, and, I, and then I was thinking, why do you, Lord, why do you use such a frail person like me? And you know what was amazing? Is the Lord took me back to the same answer that he gave me five minutes ago about the hills. And the answer was, because I want to. And then I think about our salvation and and, and God showing us love to bring us to himself, to take a a dirty wretch like me, to take somebody who was blind and deaf to anything that was good, right? To take it, to literally take the scales off my eyes, take the the earplugs out of my ears to make me alive unto himself. Why did God do all that? And the answer is, because he wants to. Because he is God. God does what he does because he wants to. What is interesting about this is this. God doesn't stop with just saving us. Matter of fact, um, it is glorifying for God to take an individual who was guilty and make them innocent. Call them innocent, right? That is really amazing. To take a sinner and to call them righteous based upon the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That is, a, that is a just a you know, blow-your-mind type of a truth, right? That God could call me innocent based upon what somebody else did on my behalf, even as guilty as I was. But in addition to that, God doesn't just leave us, does he? I wanted to illustrate it this way, and I was kind of thinking about, what are some good illustrations for it? And I was thinking about like a fireman. Can you imagine a fireman? I think we have some firemen in here this morning, and I know we have some that come to the church here, but you imagine a fireman running into a fire. You know, the house is burning down, the family's in there, and the fireman runs into the house and he, tells the, he, tell, he goes to the father of the house and he says, you know what, I really like you, you're a really great guy, I love you so much, and everything's going to be okay, and then he runs back out of the house and, every, and, he, and then that's all he does. Is that what a fireman does? No, a fireman runs into the house, he, he might say a few words of encouragement, he might not say any words of encouragement, but he's going to lump you on his back, Right? And he's going to take you out of the house. And he's going to go back in again. He's going to get the next person and the next person. He's not just going to bring encouragement, words of encouragement, but he's going to actually do something about, about it. I think about what the Lord says in Philippians 1 and verse 6, that being confident of this very thing, that he who hath begun a good work in you, right, which is that work of salvation, he who hath begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. He completes the work that he started in us. Now, we're going to get into our text here this morning. Remember this, okay? Salvation is a work that God performs on us that we cannot see. It is an invisible work. It's a work of a judge in heaven calling a person innocent on earth who is is a sinner based upon the sufficient work of Jesus Christ. It is a very invisible work. However, the sanctification process is a process that we do see. A preacher once said a person cannot truly know if they're saved unless they are seeing the sanctification process take place in their life. Unless they are seeing victories in their life, they can really never know if they've been justified or claimed innocent by God. Because the The position that we hold bears fruit that confirms that we hold that position. Does that make sense? Remember this about the process of salvation as we we see it, or the process of God making us his own. The work of of justification is when God claims us innocent. The work of glorification is in heaven when he perfects us completely in the image of Christ, both of these we can't see. The work of sanctification is the work that He works on us every single day of our lives that we can see to know, ha ha, I've been justified. Well, how do you know that? Because I'm being sanctified. And because I'm being sanctified, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that one day I will be. That's right. If you don't have sanctification, you have no grounds to stand on to say that you're going to one day be glorified. Well, I know that Jesus claimed me innocent. Well, how do you know that? You see, justification, skipping to glorification, there is no security in that, there is no confidence in that. You must have sanctification in order to hope in glorification, and in order to confirm justification. And those there's a lot of cation words, but you kind of get it, right? So the Lord does that work of sanctification to change us. This is what he talks about here in this following text. So let's read it together. Follow along with me, if you will, as I read it aloud. Verse 4 says... Everyone, 1 John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning, notice this, this is strong, these are strong statements. These are bold statements. Most of us want, honestly, folks, most of us want nothing to do with a text of Scripture like this. This text of Scripture condemns many who sit in churches week after week after week. But why does it do that? It does it so that we can be saved. You can't be saved until you're condemned. You can't be saved until you recognize that you're a sinner. You can't come to Jesus. You won't come to Jesus and cling to him and hold to him and embrace him lest you know your sinfulness, lest you know your fallen condition. So the reason why he brings out this strong condemnation is that he loves us. He doesn't want people going through life lost, thinking that they're saved. A preacher once said, there are going to be many in heaven whom we didn't expect to be there. And there are going to be a many who are not in heaven whom we did expect to be there. And folks, the reality is not that, that God hasn't given us the, the tools and the, and the witness and the evidence to know whether or not we're going to be there or be there. The problem is, is we refuse to listen to what he tells us because we are, as human beings, we are full of pride. And self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. Listen, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Okay? Underline that. Those are not my words. Those are his words. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God." By this it is evident who are the children of God. In other words, verse 10 is very, very important to this whole context. What John says is this is the way that we can know if we're children of God. This is the proof, this is the evidence. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. You really can't get a more specific phrase than this one. Here's how you know if you're a child of God or if you're a child of the devil. If I find out after doing in 2 Corinthians 13.5, the Bible says, let each man examine himself to see if he's in the faith. It it means to do an inventory on myself. If if I go through an inventory my life and I find out I'm lost, guess what I can do? I can fall on my knees before a merciful and gracious God and find forgiveness and deliverance, right? But if I never inventory my life, to discover if I'm saved or lost, I never have the opportunity to fall on my knees before a merciful and gracious God and find forgiveness. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He practicalizes it at the end. So, what john does in the next in this portion of scripture and the end of the and the end of this chapter is he shows two evidences or two let me say it this way two effects of somebody who has been blessed with god's love not god's general love but god's special love this is how you can know if you're a child of god if god has favored you with his special love Let me say this, just to reassure your hearts. What this text is not teaching is sinless perfection. This text is not teaching that you will be perfect if you're a believer, that you'll never sin. The context teaches us more. And I'm going to give you, explain that to you here in a moment. There are two main um, false teachings that are motivating John to say these words. Number one was Gnosticism. Gnosticism basically said that the body and the soul are separate. Therefore, you can do whatever you want with your body because your soul and your spirit are going to be okay. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20, the Bible says what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? And you are not your own. Your body is not your own. It has been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your... Yeah, you get it. Just a few verses before that, the Bible talks about the body is not made for sexual immorality. The body is not made for these things, but the body is made for the the Lord. The body is made for the Lord. So right away, Gnosticism is thrown out the window, right? And then you have antinomianism. Antinomianism, blah, 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 right? (laughs) It's a big word antinomianism says, because of grace, we can do whatever we want. Now, I would say that we struggle more with that doctrine in this culture today than we do with Gnosticism. Well, God is gracious. I can do whatever I want to do. The Bible says that those who turn... He talks about false teachers who turn the gospel of grace into a license to sin... Honestly, folks, grace is not a license to sin. Grace is the power not to sin. Grace is the strength by which Christ helps us win over sin. So with that said, I have, I have four observations from this text, and then two closing observations that I want to make this morning, and then I'm going to be done. Okay? Okay. that sounds like it's going to be really short, and it is because we're 20 minutes still already, so we're going to hit it fast and hard, so, so bear with me. Number one, this is a universal truth. This is a universal truth. You will find this word, this term used throughout the text. He says in verse number four, everyone. He says in verse number six, no one. He says down throughout the text, anyone. The idea is is that this truth that practicing sin is an evidence of somebody not being a child of God and practicing righteousness is the evidence of somebody being a child of God is a universal truth. In other words, there are no exceptions for it. We love to make exceptions, don't we? We love to make exceptions, don't we? And, and the more we love the things of this world, and the more we love people in this world, the more likely we are to make exceptions, aren't we? We might see somebody that we really love, and they are just totally sold into sin. They are loving sin, they are committed to sin, and we would say that they are we would say that they are saved because we love them so much. You know, you know what? If you love them so much, you might tell them that they might not be saved. You might care enough about them to tell them the truth. And you know something? If they are saved, so be it. I would rather somebody go to heaven who has been struggling in sin, and I told them you're might not be saved because you look like you're totally sold to sin, than somebody end up in hell because I told them, hey, you're fine because I love you a lot. I don't don't want to hurt your feelings, so I, I refuse to tell you the truth. People need to hear the truth. We need to speak it in love, right? But people need to hear the truth. And this Scripture gives no exceptions. There are no one who lives outside of the world of anyone and whoever, and no one. We all fit into that. John couldn't have said it any better, right? We can all be judged by whether or not we're committed to sin or whether or not we're committed to righteousness. Folks, listen, I don't preach this to you this morning to be hard. My heart is not to to be hurtful to you, but my heart is to help you see maybe where you're at spiritually so that you can come to Christ. Christ and experience the salvation and the deliverance that he offers, that he gives. Matthew 7, verse 15 through 20, on many occasions it says, we know or we are known by our fruits. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 6, if you want to turn there, you're welcome to. It'll take me a second to get there as well. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. I have heard, I have, I have seen this text, and, I, and I've written down four or five others that we won't go to this morning, but, but I have seen more misrepresenting of these texts in God's word than almost any other text. Here's what he says. Do you not know that the, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither will the sexually immoral nor the adulterers, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunks, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And there are people who are living in these lifestyles right now at this moment saying that they are going to inherit the kingdom of God. You have to throw this verse of the Bible completely out of it to to believe that. And not just this verse, but many other verses in the Scriptures that say the same thing. Those who live this... He goes on to say this at the end, But you are washed, you are sanctified, you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by His Spirit of our God. In other words, you used to be like what I just mentioned, but you're not anymore. God didn't just change your identity. God didn't just change whose family you were in. God changed you and continues to change you every day of your life. Remember this. This is a universal truth. It applies to everyone sitting under my voice, sitting in this world It applies to everyone. It is a universal truth. Number two, you'll notice another term that's used throughout this text. He says, he who practices lawlessness. You'll notice the title of my message is Habitual Sin is Incompatible with Christianity. We sin as Christians. Amen? Can I get an amen? Amen. Good. (laughs) Uh, I sin as a Christian That's, that way. We sin as Christians. That's not what this, this text is not saying that Christians will not sin. What it is saying is this. Habitual sin is not normal and not natural for a Christian. I don't know that a day that doesn't go by in my life that I don't sin. But I'll tell you this. Before I was saved, there was no battle. There was no war. I just sinned because I like to. Every time I sin now, it's a war. It's on, right? It's a war. Yeah, I fall. I fail. But I'm in war when I do it. I'm in war when I do it. Because the Spirit of God lives within me and He's not going to let me fall without war. Right? I'm in war. If you're a Christian, you're in war every day of your life. You're in war. And yes, you fall. Unless we all, yes, we all fall, and yes, we all stumble, but you're in war. One of the signs of a person being a believer is not that they're perfect, but it's that they're in war over sin. Have you ever listened to to John Piper's? He has a little video. It's called Make War. Man it is powerful. But he says, too many people have given in to every sin, making excuses, making justifications for why they're doing what they're doing. And then he says, with a John Piper voice, make war. Listen, we are at war as Christians. We are not under the slavery of sin any longer. We're not. He is not our master. We do not owe it anything we're not slaves to the flesh. We do not live habitually and willingly in sin. We sin, first John 1, 8 through 10. If any man says he has no sin, he is a liar and the truth is not in him, right? Chapter 2 and verse 1 says if we sin, we have an advocate with, Father, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Yeah, We, we do sin. But what 1 John 3 is saying is this, we don't habitually sin. There are some times that we sin we don't even know it. Let me give you a few thoughts here. To habitually sin means two things. First of all, the word here that's used for practice in the Greek, literally means to, to exercise yourself, to prepare yourself, to make yourself ready for sin. I, I, I mean, it's almost like you're dressing up. You know what? I'm going to go out and I'm going to have an extramarital relationship and I'm going to get dressed up when I do it. Right? So you're, you're preparing yourself, you're equipping yourself to make this sin an enjoyable event. This is the idea of somebody who is habitually, they're sold, they're enslaved, they live for sin. And we exercise for, uh, to be a good athlete, we exercise for certain things. But here, John says, they exercise themselves unto sin. And that is their goal. They want to be good. They want to be good sinners. You say, Pastor John, that doesn't make any sense. It does make sense. Just look around you just look around you. You look at our colleges that we look at today. Those kids in those colleges on a, on a normal basis are practicing sin. They don't just want to do sin. They want to be good at it. That's what it means to practice sin. That's what it means to habitually sin. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 10 and verse 26 kind of the second definition besides just practicing to be good at it. The second definition is found in Hebrews 10.26. The Bible says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, the King James uses the word willingly, if we go on sinning willingly after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. In other words, the idea of it is, as I receive the truth, I, I know that sin, I know that this is sin, and I know that repentance is the only way to Christ, but I choose not to repent, so I will... Here's what happens with people who who love their sin. What they do is they make another gospel. Okay, Salvation comes by repenting of our sins, right? But if I don't want to repent of my sin, what do I have to do? I I can't let myself be condemned, so what I do is I find another way. That's why the writer, author of Hebrews says, there is no other way. There is no other sacrifice for their sins. In other words, there is no other way except through repentance. You, you look at the, and study the scriptures as Jesus Christ preached the gospel. Every time Jesus Christ preached the gospel, he went right to the heart of the individual. He went to the place that they did not want him to go. With the woman at the well, it was about relationships. Five husbands living with the sixth, right? With the rich young ruler, it was about money. Jesus always went to the heart of the individual for, to call them to do what? To call them to repent. To call them to repent. And if we don't repent, what we do is we make up another gospel. Willingly, voluntarily being in sin Let me give you a few thoughts here. There's a few distinctions between sinning and habitually sinning. Some people fall into sin. Some people jump into sin. Some people sin willingly. Some people war daily over their sins. Some people love their sins. Some people hate their sins. Some people dwell in their sins. And some people get up immediately after they have fallen into their sins. Paul describes it well in Romans 7 where he says the things that I don't want to do. Literally, here's what Paul says. The things that I hate, I do. Do you know it was confirmation that Paul was a believer? It wasn't that he didn't do wrong things. It was that he hated them. He did wrong things, but he hated doing wrong things. Paul's heart was right, but Paul's outer man was still wrestling every single day. The things that I want to do, Romans 7, 15 to 25, these are the things that I don't do. The things that I don't want to do are I hate, these are the things that I do. Galatians 5, 17 says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So number one, remember, this is a universal, this is a universal truth. Number two, Habitual sin is not just struggling with sin, it is being sold out to it, okay? Number three, what is God's attitude towards sin? And I'm just going to give you these very quickly. I have a, quite an outline on this, but I want you to think about this for a moment. Here's what he says. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, the word sinning here literally means to, to fall, to fail, to, to stumble, to make a mistake, to, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Uh, to err, right? This is how we view sin. Anyone who practices sinning, I made a mistake, right? Now here's what the Lord does. The Lord takes our idea of sinning and he maximizes it. You just think you erred, but you didn't just err. You forsook God, does that make sense? Anyone who practices sinning also practices lawlessness. In other words, what God does is God brings himself into the picture. You know, it's like, oh, I offended somebody today. Oh, I offended God. Do you see how the difference In our perspective can change by thinking about what we have done to someone versus thinking about what we are doing to God? David in Psalm 51 doesn't say, yeah, I I committed adultery with Bathsheba, and and yes, I sinned against Uriah by having him murdered, and, and his family, you know, his whole family suffered from me having him murdered, and David doesn't say that. David says, against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. David maximizes the essence and the nature of his sin. Romans says that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. In other words, when you minimize your sin, when you call your, oh, it was just a white lie, or, or it, was just, it was just a, I just stumbled or whatever, when you minimize your sin, you minimize God's grace. But when you're able to maximize, when when you're able to see your sin for what it really is, when you're able to see your sin in light of a holy and just and righteous and perfect God, when you can see your sin in light of God, it maximizes that sin. You're no longer worried about offending someone else. Listen, the problem with that mentality is this. As long as you can get away with it without offending someone else, you'll do it. But you can't get away with sin without offending God. You can't. That's why it's important that we see that God sees everything. He knows everything. There's never a moment that he's not there present with you. Psalm 139, Though I make my bed in hell, thou art there. Though I rise up into the heavens, thou art there. There's no hiding from God. We must realize that God hates sin. He sent us his law so that it would be maximized, so that we would see it as exceedingly sinful. He tells us that very thing in Romans 7.13. He said, it was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandments or through the law, sin might be exceedingly sinful. You know what? God sent his law into this world to show you that sin is horrible. Turn with me to Romans 5. This is a very important passage of Scripture. Watch what he says. In Romans 5, here's what he says. Therefore, in verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. How many of us have sinned? Now, here's what I want you to see. God sending his law into the world was an extraordinary act of God's love, okay? Remember that. When God sent his law, it was so that we would see what was killing us. Does that make sense? Watch what he says. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given... But sin is not counted or sin, is not, sin is, is not known, sin is not understood where there is no law. In other words, sin was present even when there was no law. From the time of, uh, of I was going to say Noah, <laughs> from, the, from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, we have no what? We have no law. But guess what was still present? Sin was still present. Even though there was no law, sin was still present. And in addition to that, not only was sin present, but the Bible says from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, people were doing what? People were dying. Do you get that? People were dying, and they didn't know what was going on. They didn't understand the law. They didn't understand these things about the law. They were still reaping the consequences of their sin without an understanding of what their sin was. It's almost like somebody saying, hey, here's the law. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but if you break it, you're going to be in trouble. God gives a law and says, if you break it, you're going to die. And everyone is dying and no one knows why. And so, what does God do? God says, I'm going to give you the law. And the law is going to make it very plain to you why you're dying. That's what he says in the next verses here. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. God gave us the law to show us why we were reaping the harvest of our sin. He showed us the law to unpack for us why we were all suffering. God showed us the law because he loved us. And because he loved his people, he gave them a picture of his character to show them you're falling short all the time. I know you don't realize it, but you're falling short you're falling short, you're falling short. Now let me give you the law so that you can see why you're falling short. And remember this, the law was not meant so that they would say, okay, let's stop falling short, right? Why was the law given? The law was given as a schoolmaster, right? Galatians tells us that, to lead them to, to, lead them to Christ. So here is a generation, generations of people dying, not understanding God's character, not understanding God's holiness, not understanding God's, uh, that they are offending him daily. God says, here it is. I want you to see it. Not so that you can fix yourself, but so that you can come and run and cling and hold to the one and only who can save you, Jesus Christ. And God gave us his law because he loved us. I'm going to stop there this morning. I want to encourage you. You've got to come back next week to hear the... Listen, I, I mean this with all of my heart. If you don't come back next week, you're only going to get half of the story. You're only going to... Why? Listen, this... I'm going to say these few words. This is not in a command to live righteously. This text is not a command to live righteously. It is an observation of the fact that those who are in Christ Jesus will live righteously. And, and here is why, okay? God's love is so amazing and so powerful, and what he did for you and on your behalf was so amazing and so powerful that the Bible says in John, in 1 John, I believe it's chapter 4, that we love him because he first loved us. So, so what does God's love for us cause us to do? Okay, let's, get, let's go behind that. What does God's love for us cause us to do? God's love for us causes us to love him. You see, our love for God is the root. Our love for God is the root of our obedience to God. If you don't love God, you will not obey him, rightly. But what he does is is he makes it impossible for somebody who is a recipient of his love not to love him. You ever have somebody just that did something amazing for you? That it was just impossible for you not to love them? You just had to. God has done everything, everything, so that you will love him. And a product of that love is that you will trust him and you will obey him. So, Again, I'm going to close in prayer, but I just really want you to come back next week. I don't want you to miss the end because you might walk away discouraged this morning, and I'm not here to discourage you. I want to give you hope, and hope is going to be more solid next week than it was this week, okay? Father, thank you so much for your word, and I pray that you will just use it and bless it and challenge our hearts with it. If there's someone here this morning that is just sold to sin, they are slave to sin, I pray, dear God, that you would help them to embrace Christ, not just to save them from that sin, but to save them from the condemnation or the, or the punishment for that sin, but Lord God, to save them from its very power. That you, O oh Lord, might be seen, not as one who makes promises or encourages us that we're, that we're your children, but one that makes these things happen, and that you do it, Lord God, for your glory and by your grace. Please bless the remainder of our service. Be with us throughout this day and throughout this week that you might be magnified in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.